I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, the complex systems that make our world hum can be wrecked by small mistakes. But is that fixable? You know, the antidote to complexity, it's not simplicity, it's transparency. Then, how an old song can breathe new life into us. When somebody's listening to their music, favorite music, their brain is lighting up in many parts of the brain. So it's taking advantage of the parts of the brain that are still um, very functional. Plus, many people aspire to be wealthy, but those who achieve it often don't really want to talk about it. We have this silence around talking about class, and it makes it so transgressive to talk about money that then we can kind of never talk about it. I think that that's one of the things that like solidifies our current unequal social arrangement. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In March of 1979, there was a minor plumbing problem near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. A valve was supposed to shut, but it didn't. The plumbing problem, as you might guess, turned out to have major consequences, which is why we remember it today. The open valve was in a huge building on the Susquehanna River, a nuclear power plant called Three Mile Island. And a partial meltdown, including release of radioactive gas, was underway. The White House called an emergency meeting. As the new book Meltdown explains, President Jimmy Carter's science aide suggested to the head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that maybe terminal cancer patients could be sent in to release the valve. The head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission looked at the White House aide, and according to the book, he could tell he wasn't joking. Meltdowns, though, don't just happen in nuclear reactors. They happen in financial markets, in airplanes, in companies. We live in a world of complicated systems where most of us understand a sliver of what's going on on the back end. And all those moving parts mean that something as simple as a valve not closing can lead to a nuclear meltdown, which has made big catastrophes harder to prevent. Chris Clearfield is a co-author of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. He's also the founder of System Logic and a former derivatives trader. Chris, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So what was the first thing that got you interested in this idea of systems just completely breaking apart and, and failing? That's a great question. I think it really was um, just looking at the world and seeing what was going on and seeing all of these big failures that we had out there and kind of looking into them a little bit and realizing that there was a lot more in common with them than than seemed on the surface. Mm. You know, I was a trader during the financial crisis. And so I kind of had a front row seat to organizations that handled that relatively well and organizations that really fell apart um, during that crisis. And, you know, for for me, it was really interesting to sort of try and understand or, or try and think about why did some organizations handle this well and and others really struggle mm-hmm. with it? And then just a couple years later, the, the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil spill yep. happened. And for me, that was kind of looking into that accident, realizing it, it actually had a lot in common with the financial crisis. And and that was pretty unexpected. And so that's kind of part of what piqued my interest in the topic. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to uh, Three Mile Island for a minute. 
How could something like a valve, so something so seemingly inconsequential, it was a small bit of plumbing, it was related to some plumbing maintenance that had been done, how could something like that partially melt down a nuclear reactor, which when you think about safety systems, boy, the number one goal of a nuclear power right. plan is <laughs> not, to melt, not to melt down, right? So how did that happen? It's really interesting. And our insight in that accident really comes from a, a researcher called Charles Perot, um, who goes by Chick, Chick Perot. And Chick Perot was a sociologist who looked at the Three Mile Island accident after it happened. And, you know, the official conclusion of the accident investigation was that the it was operator error, that the operators had made a mistake, that they hadn't responded to the the accident correctly. And it was their fault that the meltdown happened. But what Perot saw when he looked at it was he really saw this accident where you couldn't even understand the logic of it until you had a bunch of engineers doing nine months worth of investigation. Um, And so what he said was basically, you know, it's a cheap shot to blame these operators. There's no way they could have responded correctly because there's no way they could have understood what was going on. You know, not only did you have that valve that was stuck open in the wrong position, um, you had other valves that were closed that were supposed to be open. No one really knows Mm. why to this day. Even the uh, initial trigger of the accident, which was some pumps shutting off, really still nobody really understands why that happened. And so what Perot looked at when he looked at this accident was he saw, you know, this major nuclear meltdown that wasn't caused by a big external shock. Uh, It wasn't caused by a terrorist attack or an earthquake, but it was caused by all of these small, small failures that came together. And for him, that was really uh, terrifying in a way because it, it meant that you know, this incredibly complex system, it really was beyond our understanding and, and in many ways beyond our control. Um, I want to take a bit of an excursion here to a meltdown that fortunately did not have health consequences or, you know, ruin anybody's lives or anything. It was at the 2017 Oscars and Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, they come out to present the award for Best Picture. And the Academy Award... For best picture. You're awful. <laughs> Come on. La La Land. Yeah! Uh, Chris Clearfield, that was obviously a mistake. Uh, there was a bit of a meltdown in a system. And the system may not be, again, like the most important system in the world. But their highest priority, you would think, would be to give the awards to the right people. It's an award show. Right. Um, how did that happen? Like all of these meltdowns, there were a bunch of factors that led to it. There's one that really stands out, though, which is, I mean, you you can listen to Warren Beatty's voice, right? And you just, you hear his hesitation, and you right. hear you hear him really struggling. And I think, you know, Faye Dunaway kind of thinks he's hamming it up, but he's, he's not. He's looking at this card. He's realized it's the wrong thing. But by the time right. he's realized it, it's too late, right? He's already on stage. He doesn't really know what to right. do. And right. And so you look at the design of the envelopes that they had in 2017, and they were these, you know, envelopes with these, like, sleek gold lettering, very beautiful, very subtle, kind of beautiful, elegant design. And what happened is backstage, Warren Beatty was handed the wrong envelope, but he didn't realize it until he had it open and he was actually looking at the card. And so one of the problems here is that there were these things that went wrong, but then it was very hard to catch the error because there wasn't a lot of transparency right. in the system. Right, right, right. And if you compare that to the envelopes this year, um, how to put it delicately, they're really ugly. 
Um, <laughs> right? I mean, they... Well, I mean, the whole, the viewing audience, which is really what the Oscars is for, yeah. I, don't, I doubt appreciates the sleek and subtle lettering. Exactly. Uh, you know, of last year, whereas, as, as you you know, point out, subtle lettering can lead to problems. Yeah, exactly. So this year, it says best picture. You know, the category name is in huge letters. It's actually on the envelope right. twice. Uh, so it's pretty hard to imagine a mix-up not getting caught because it's so clear. And this is really this bigger lesson, which is, you know, the antidote to complexity, it's not simplicity, mm. it's transparency. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Chris Clearfield, co-author of the book Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. So you say that one way of averting disasters often is to listen to people who speak up, who dissent. Um, It could be an outsider who says, like, I don't quite understand why you're doing things this way. Um, It could be a whistleblower, because sometimes you've got people who sort of see the seeds of a problem before the problem blows up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the most powerful solutions uh, in the book. And I think it's one of the things, you know, if you think about what what the kind of thesis is, right, it's that these small errors snowball into these big problems. And so, well, what we need to do then is we need to start to get a handle on these small errors before that happens. And, you know, there's loads of examples. I mean, aviation as an industry has done a really amazing job of kind of getting a handle on this and encouraging flight crews to to report these small problems before, you know, these near misses before they become big ones. But, you know, there's also there's a really powerful story in the book about um, a nurse who is working in a hospital and she has two patients with similar last names in the same room. And they're actually taking medications that have similar sounding names, too. And she almost gives the wrong medication to the wrong patient and she catches herself And what she does is she doesn't just catch the problem for herself. She tells her fellow nurses about it. And then they actually separate the patients into two separate rooms. So, you know, the nurse on the next shift is not likely to make that same problem. Mm -hmm. And then the hospital goes ahead and and takes it a step further and actually implements a policy where patients with similar last names aren't going to be put in the same rooms anymore. And so I think what you see from this story is you see the power of – Um, It's almost, you know, it's the power of small data, right? It's the power of one person's experience with this near disaster, and then the organization learns from it. Mm -hmm. And what we need to be doing is training and teaching those who are in power to listen and to really give them the tools to be able to do that, too, because it's not easy. Right. Um, Another point that you make about how to avoid disaster, and this kind of speaks to that, that notion of listening, is that the more diverse your team is... The better chance you say they will actually have at like spotting potential problems at at kind of um, avoiding the landmines down the road. Yeah, this was one of the most surprising pieces of research that we came across. Diversity actually helps teams avoid meltdowns, and and that was kind of surprising. And when we talk about diversity, we're, we're thinking both about you know surface level diversity, race and and gender mm-hmm. things like that, but we're also thinking about diversity in professional backgrounds, diversity in expertise. Mm-hmm. And so what the research shows across a bunch of different domains is that diversity works not because it brings together a bunch of different perspectives in this sort of happy kumbaya moment, but it works because it makes things harder. So it it creates kind of a speed bump in a diverse group we're less willing to give other people the benefit of the doubt. And that applies whether we're, you know, making decisions in a financial context, um, whether we're making Mm -hmm. decisions about 
um, who to hire, that kind of thing. And it also applies when we're thinking about how diverse teams make decisions about big, complex, thorny business problems. So Mm -hmm. um, one of the most interesting pieces of research in the book is this research that shows that community banks that had more bankers on their board were more likely to fail during the financial crisis. And Interesting. That's kind of surprising, right? I mean, you would think that bankers would be pretty good at managing banks. Right, right, right. It It is kind of, but I also can see that somebody from outside a system would be like, this does not make any sense to me. Why do you do things this way? Exactly. And you might have to actually think about why you do things this way. That's exactly it. And really what it did was it just enabled that questioning to happen. So a board that had not just bankers, but also doctors and lawyers and nonprofit mm-hmm. folks and people of different professional backgrounds, they would just be willing to say, hey, this doesn't make sense to me and and just kind mm-hmm. of challenge, not even necessarily challenge the decisions, but just challenge the the cadence of decision making, right? So they wouldn't just kind of go along to get along. They were really willing to say, I don't understand this. Can you explain this more and defer making a decision until there was more to understand? If you were giving advice to to companies, to organizations, what would you say that the two or three things should be that somebody should really focus on if they want to prevent a meltdown? I'll give two of, I think, my favorites. And actually, both of them apply to uh, both companies as well as people, as well as people just making big decisions about their lives. Right. One thing you can do is just to incorporate outsiders, you know, just bring in somebody who's not connected with the decision but has enough of an idea about um, the context that the decision is being made but, you know, isn't bound up in any of the particular outcomes and get them to weigh in on it. And that's something that companies can do, you know, we can all do. That's a really a really powerful tool because it just shakes up our thinking a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um You know, another one is, uh, and we talked a little bit about this, but just realize that in complex systems, we're not going to have all the answers. And so what we need to do is we need to try things. We need to try something, see how it works, and then reflect on that and kind of suggest something new to try. And this is something we Mm -hmm. see um, folks like film crews and and emergency room teams doing. Um, But it's also... You know, as I was writing the book and was kind of enmeshed in this research, um, looking at in particular how organizations kind of manage these crisis situations that they don't always understand, I started to realize that my morning routine with with our five year old, getting him ready for preschool, that actually looked a lot like a crisis, um, <laughs> right? And there were meltdowns, right? Exactly, exactly. And so I've seen it myself. <laughs> many of us have. Um, And so what we started to do is we started to have this kind of short, you know, five minute meeting every week, just reflecting on asking three questions. What went well? What didn't go well? And what do we want to try next week? And, you know, it's really simple. But what it means is that we're not solving the same problems over and over again in the moment. But instead, we're figuring out, okay, you know, we we can't spend time in the morning finding jackets and shoes and gloves. So we're going to find, get a bin and put them downstairs in the, you know, in the garage before we go out. Um, we're going to make sure that the lunchbox is always put in the same place and stuff like that. And so, you know, the truth is we never know what solutions are going to work, but we come up with stuff to try and then we see if that works or doesn't and, and move, move on from there. And I think that kind of experimentation is something that uh, is hard for places to do, but really is, um, essential to getting a better handle on how 
to avoid the kind of meltdowns that we see more and more often. Chris Clearfield is a co-author of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. On our Facebook page, we've got an article for you by Chris Clearfield about preparing for a crisis that you could never predict. That's at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. When it comes to getting healthy, everyone is always looking for a magic bullet. Elsie Stern didn't exactly find a magic bullet, but she did find ABBA. Elsie had been told to calm her high anxiety, which is a condition that has contributed to her being hospitalized. So then they say meditate, but when you're sitting here meditating, I'm thinking of all these things I shouldn't be thinking of. I gotta pay this bill, I gotta do this, I have to do that. Then a local organization, which works with seniors, told Elsie they had started to give music to some of their clients to see if it might enhance their lives. And they wanted to know what kind of music did she like? It was an easy question. I love ABBA. ABBA, the the Swedish pop group. (laughs) Lucky nobody lives upstairs. You know, can hear me. Elsie remembers going out dancing to ABBA. And when she heard their music again, those dancing days came flooding back to her. But something else happened, too. Her anxiety dropped. When Marini came and she said if I brought the music for me, of course I listened to that, and now I don't have all this going on in my head because I love music, you know? So it also helps me. Music therapy professor Wendy McGee is not particularly surprised by this kind of response. Decades ago, when she was a student in Australia, she started witnessing music's ability to impact people with various neurological diseases. And what I saw was people who, if you said to them, what's your name, they weren't able to actually even respond with their name. They weren't really able to speak to you if you interacted with them. But if you started singing to them, they could complete the last word of a phrase of a really familiar song Or you could even, like, ask them musical quiz-type questions. Um, You know, Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote the sound of... And they could say music. So here we saw people who were engaged in music-making, so singing. Um, They certainly weren't physically able to play instruments, but they were able to respond with singing. My heart wants to sing every song it hears. We're living at the most fascinating time, um, really, in terms of understanding how music impacts the brain. Because with the invention of modern technologies and all the different types of ways we have of measuring responses in brain activity, it's enabled us to get um, a much better insight about what goes on when we hear music or when we listen to music or when we make music or when we move to music. McGee now works at Temple University in Philadelphia, and she says that when we hear music, there are multiple levels on which it engages our brain. Rhythm, melody lyrics. 
we've stimulated not just particular areas of the brain, not just the lobes of the brain, we've actually stimulated networks and systems. So we're firing all different areas and these different areas of the brain relate to each other in different ways. And most importantly, we light up these areas to do with pleasure, emotion and reward. And in the last few years, more senior centers and hospitals have started to understand the depth of this mental engagement and the unexpected power of music to help people struggling with all sorts of issues. Our staff members will go out and do the interview and get the individual's music preferences. Rory Silva worked as an operations manager at Somerville Cambridge Elder Services just outside of Boston, and she heard about this nonprofit called Music and Memory, which aims to tap into the power of music to impact, to excite the human brain. So we ask questions like, do you remember um, what your wedding song was? If, if someone has dementia, they're they might not remember, but their children might, or they may have heard of it, or their spouse might remember. Um, so we try and pick apart what their true music preferences are, and then we build the playlist and give it to the staff member to bring back out to the home. Um, and do you find that when people ask for things, they normally like stuff from when? Their childhood, their 20s? Like, what do you, do you notice a pattern it's typically a lot of Frank Sinatra, Dizzy Gillespie, a lot of the jazz and um, the Rat Pack crew and um, a lot from, I'd say, between like the 40s and 70s. That's where most of our music comes from. And the way you look tonight. Which brings us, kind of, back to ABBA. The addictive Swedish pop band of the 70s. And to Elsie Stern. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Oh, it's so, yeah, so tiny. I'm looking after you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, just the TV technology now is something else, you know. With the, I mean, we had to, in our days, it was black and white and turn the TV on. So to comprehend that this can hold so much music. I'm saying, my goodness, what's going to happen three or four years down the road? I mean, really? Stern is talking about an iPod, which she got when she became part of the program, Music and Memory. The program started on Long Island, and it's now in thousands of hospitals and senior care facilities around the world. The iPod Elsie got had been programmed with her favorite songs, songs that she wants to listen to again and again. Just a couple of miles away, Louisa Solano also got an iPod. Well, it's great to meet you. (laughs) Louisa spent much of her life running a poetry bookstore. Now she's got epilepsy and she tends to forget things. She says the iPod has changed her life. Solano grew up listening to the Grand Old Opry, to Hank Williams, to Patsy Cline. I, I would say that of that group, it was Patsy Cline. I go out walking after midnight Out in the moonlight Just like we used to do I'm always walking after midnight Searching for you Obviously, because she's a woman, but she has such a fantastic voice. I can start crying almost at the drop of a hat if I'm feeling sad and it's playing. And you're listening to Patsy Cline? Yeah. Yeah. I love you. I'm always walking after midnight searching for you. 
Solano knows the music she likes, and she says having it back in her life has had some unintended consequences. Like when her sister, who she isn't that close to, was visiting and helped Louisa when she got confused by how to work the iPod. And then she said, well, let's see what you play. And I showed her my list. And there was this dead silence, which grew deader and deader and deader. And then she looked at me and said, this is almost exactly like my own. Really? Yeah. And then she informed me that um, year, the years ago when I was, I'd moved into a new apartment, she said, well, I was, we were waiting there for you. I found this copy, this record, that you had at Buffalo Springfield. And she said that was the first time I ever heard music like that before. She said, now we have this great collection. Hmm. And it was the, the deepest bonding experience I've ever had with her, and I think li- likewise with That's really interesting. And, and I mean, it was, it, it was a, it, it was a terrific gift. Hmm. You didn't think you were very close, but music brought you together. Right. Right. There's something happening here. But what it is ain't exactly clear. Wendy McGee, the music therapy professor from Temple University, says despite the fact that there are still mysteries surrounding how music affects the brain, we know it's amazing at pressing our buttons. And if you're a caregiver or you're just a family member, you can engage with people that you love through music, people who often are hard to reach otherwise. McGee personally likes the idea of singing together, even if that sounds a little cheesy. Even if you think you can't sing in tune, we're all born musical beings, every single one of us. And the purpose of this is not to be performing at the Carnegie Hall, the purpose is just to engage, you know, just to engage with your loved one and try and give them some structure, try to engage them as well. Dan Cohen, who runs the nonprofit Music and Memory, in which both Louisa and Elsie participate, he's been a huge advocate of bringing music, generally via iPods, into people's lives. Those people are not always seniors, but they often are. It used to be in the 80s, it was a digital divide, the rich and the poor. Rich had access to technology, the poor did not. And this was sort of a new kind of digital divide. If you were institutionalized somewhere, um, you lost your access. There was a lot of technology around you, but nothing with you in mind. Um, And so uh, I thought, gee, this is where I could sort of add value to help make this happen. Cohen was listening to the radio about a dozen years ago when he heard a report on how people loved their iPods. And he thought... Well, that might be true for kids or for young adults, but Cohen wondered about older adults who might be on the other side of that divide. He knew they loved music, but they might not have known how to make it accessible or portable in the same way as younger people. Cohen had a background in social work, but he had also worked in technology. And he started interviewing seniors in New York about the music they liked, loading the music onto an iPod, and giving it to them. Since then, the program has spread across the U.S. into Canada, Australia, Europe, and Israel. Now Cohen wants policymakers to realize what music can contribute to health. Music engages more parts of the brain than any other of our senses. So, you know, our sight, sense of smell, a very small part of the brain lights up when you do a brain scan. But when somebody's listening to their music, favorite music, their brain is lighting up in many parts of the brain. So it's taking advantage of the parts of the brain that are still um, very functional. 
Louisa Solano, who ran the poetry shop before she retired, told me one hurdle for her with the program has been figuring out how to use the iPod. Well, I don't know how to sh- um, sh- shuffle it yet. I haven't figured that part out. And no, sometimes I can't get the replay or the play, play in advance, and I don't know how to turn it off, actually. <laughs> I'm getting there. Okay. It's only a year, you know. <laughs> Give me time. Okay. I'm working up to it. But when she does get it to work, the music seems to alter her world a little bit, and it brings her back to another time. When I become really anxious, I play it. And it really, it really, really works. It just creates this kind of security that um, eliminates the need for any medication. Crazy, I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. On our website, you can see pictures of me with Louisa and Elsie, and you can get more info about music's impact on the brain. Plus, everyone on our staff has listed a couple of songs that stir memories from our youth. That's at innovationhub.org. You'd love me as long as you Money, as you know, can be a touchy subject. But how touchy? Rachel Sherman had no idea. A few years ago, she set out to do what she thought was a relatively straightforward study of 50 wealthy people. Most of them have at least half a million dollars in earnings every year and or assets of over $3 million. So they're they're in the 1% for the most part. Some of them are in the 0.1% with assets of over $50 million, you know, incomes in the tens of millions. What Sherman, who's an associate professor of sociology at the New School in New York, wanted to know from these folks was... How did they spend their money? What did they think they needed? And what did they just want? Then somewhere along the way, the focus of the study changed. Sherman found it was very hard to find someone who was rich, or at least someone who would use that word. They want to distance themselves from the stigma of wealth. And so it's actually easier. They would, you know, we think of rich people as being kind of braggy and like, of course, everyone wants to be rich. So who's not going to show it off? But in fact, I think that at least, you know, in this population, it's sort of more comfortable to be able to say you're middle class, to feel like you're middle class or maybe upper middle class. No longer, she says, are we living in an era dominated by Vanderbilts and Rockefellers and Astors, a kind of Great Gatsby vision of wealth. We have seen a kind of decline of the old upper class, that sort of wasp, you know, almost aristocratic upper class that we think of as often coming from old money. And they've really been replaced by people working in finance or in technology or in, you know, these high revenue and wealth producing industries. Sherman put the findings of her interviews with 50 New Yorkers into a book, Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence, which tells a striking story. Many rich people have become uncomfortable with their wealth. And that's probably not good. Not for them, not for anyone else. If the country wants to think seriously and talk openly about how you craft smart policies around income and taxes, but the discomfort that the rich feel is not all that surprising for a couple of reasons. First, it can be hard to see yourself as wealthy if your neighbors and the parents at your kid's school, if they all live relatively similar lives. 
Second, a focus on the top 1% has been a hot topic in politics ever since the recession of 2008, because the top 1% of income earners in America takes home more than 20% of the money every year. But many people who get those large salaries are aware of the inequity, so much so that talking openly about their money is not really the way they want to go. I had a woman who refused to tell me her family's rent. They were renting their apartment because they had just sold the place that they owned. And she said, you know, that's not for you to know. And I said, and it's actually really useful as an interviewer when people say stuff like that, because you can say, well, why, you know, fine, you don't have to tell me, but why is it that you don't want to tell me? And she said, you know, that's not part of our values. That's not what makes a person, you know, that I can't remember verbatim, but, you know, that's not what makes a, a, a person important. That's not what we care about. And also she said, you know, people will make judgments of you based on how you spend your money. They'll judge you for sending your kids to private school, which mm. she did. And she sort of wanted to avoid those judgments. Mm. Another woman told me that talking about money was more private than talking about sex. Mm. I had another woman who, you know, hides her price tag, the price tags on her clothing and her household items from her nanny because it makes her so uncomfortable to think of her nanny sort of looking at these price tags. Mm. So, you know, people who won't invite their children's classmates over to their homes because they don't want the families to know how wealthy they are. Those are the things that are kind of happening. And so I think that not talking about money, you know, it's not like I think everybody should just suddenly go into the public square and yell what their income is. I mean, that that I don't think is super helpful either. But we have this silence around talking about class, and that sort of helps – us imagine that class privilege doesn't exist, right? It helps the wealthy people themselves manage how uncomfortable they are with inequality. And in general, it makes it so transgressive to talk about money that then we can kind of never talk about it. I think Mm -hmm. that that's one of the things that like solidifies our current unequal social arrangement. Right. In what way does the feeling that rich people have about money, whatever that is, how does that have any impact on something like policy, right? The amount of money they have is in large part due to uh, how much we tax them, you know, things like that. But how does how they feel about their money have any impact on how they're taxed? So if we were to have less, be sort of less distracted by the idea that some rich people are, you know, inhabiting their wealth well and buying the right kinds of things and so on or giving away the right kind of money, we might be able to have a different kind of conversation about tax policy. I also think – I mean I should say you know, there, there, some of these people are so sensitive to being talked about in the public sphere. I had several people when I was doing these interviews you know, both before and after the 2012 uh, presidential election, you know, people who had supported Obama strongly. You know, these are mostly Democrats. I, I'm, right, I'm, right. Fairly confident that very, very few, less than 10 percent of these 50 people that I interviewed would have voted for Trump, right? These are the kind of people who are going to be Hillary Clinton supporters. Right. And I'm guessing that's a geography thing. The people are in New York and New York tends to vote Democratic, therefore. Right. Exactly. That's, like not, all that's not representative. Are right, of right. course. Of course. Right. And again, there is a range across my sample of how rich they are, right? Mm-hmm. So some of them have $1 million and some of them have, you know, $50 million. Mm-hmm. Although, as I said, they're mostly in the top 1 percent. So – you know, they had voted for Obama. They had been enthusiastic about Obama. And then when Obama started saying, well, we should repeal the Bush era tax cuts on people making over $250,000 a year, you know, then they got like really reluctant to support Obama. And it wasn't even so much because of the 
proposed tax policy. I mean, I think that was relevant, but it was also just the idea that he was suggesting that there was something wrong with these people, right? That they're, you know, that $250,000 a year was wealthy mm. and that he was kind of bringing up the idea of class. Someone else said to me about uh, Bill de Blasio, who was at the time getting elected mayor of New York, that, you know, he was creating class divide by talking about inequality in New York City, which is one of the most unequal uh, big cities in the U.S., if not the most unequal. Mm. So there's a sense that like ta- even talking about it is so transgressive that they don't want to support politicians who will bring it up. Because I think for the people who are you know liberal but not super progressive, one of the ways that they're managing their ambivalence and discomfort is by just kind of hanging out with people who are very similar to themselves and not really talking about it. So one of the things that you write about uh, very much in this vein is how wealthy people bring up their kids uh, to try to make sure that, like, they don't feel entitled, they don't act entitled. And that's tough because these are obviously kids who are going on fancy vacations, they're going to private school. But how did you find that people tried to ensure that they had kids who were not spoiled and did not take things for granted? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the most fascinating areas, I think, of the whole project is because I think that these parents, you know, as I sort of said, they they want their kids – well, they want themselves to be normal, right? They do what I'm calling aspiring to the middle, right? They want to feel like they're in the middle, that their mm. values are of the middle class, that they're hard workers, that they're reasonable consumers, you know, that they're not these, like, terrible rich people that we've been mm-hmm. talking about. So – and – Yet they also want to give their kids, you know, all of the advantages that they can. So the vast majority of people that I talked to had their kids in private school. You know, they had tutors. They had therapists. If they had any kind of learning disabilities, they had, you know, lots of therapy for that. They had art. They had music. They had language. They had, you know, coaching of all different sure. kinds, right, depending depending on the age of the kid. So they had, you know, they they traveled internationally, right? Families, these families would go on, you know, most of them go on significant vacations a couple times a year. Right. So these are kids that are sort of objectively advantaged. So what are the parents going to do, right? So one thing that they can do is actually try to put their kids into environments where they have a lot of contact with people who have less than they do. The most obvious place to do that, of course, is public school. Most parents don't do that. Mm-hmm. They, you know, there was one mother I talked to who they had lived in a kind of middle class housing, like apartment building while their home was being renovated. And she said, I really want my kids to continue to have contact with the families there. She told me, like, her son was friends with a family. I can't remember. They had three kids that lived, you know, with the whole family lived in a one-bedroom apartment or something like that. Mm. Like, here's a kind of signal of more, like, regular people, and I want my kid to be friends with those people. So, you know, however meaningful that is. But there were some parents that were trying to pursue those more meaningful connections. Then there are other parents that are trying to kind of expose their kids to people who have less, especially really poor people, so they would take them to food pantries or homeless shelters or, you know, teach them to volunteer. So really giving them more of a, like a noblesse oblige kind of an ethic, Mm -hmm. but while putting them in private school and also taking them on these fancy vacations and stuff. And, you know, some of these parents will say to their kids, and this is what you were actually asking about, is, you know, you should appreciate this, right? Not every kid gets to go to Mexico on vacation. You should appreciate it. Not every kid gets to go to private school. You should appreciate it. This is special. It's a treat. You know, this is all of these ideas that, you know, sort of this isn't normal and you need to appreciate it. But at the same time, of course, for these kids, this is normal. Right. I was right? going to say, it's so hard to imagine yourself as some other kid. I mean, you're yourself and exactly. It's normal. Right, exactly. 
exactly. It's normal. So I think, and, and sort of what I argue in the book, is that what ultimately happens, and I think these parents are genuinely concerned about this. You know, I don't think this is a sort of like fake attempt. I think that, and much of what I think is happening in everything that I've been talking about is that it is hard to be an individual with privilege in a world that is structurally asymmetrical, right? Like, what are you actually going to do about this as an individual? So even people who have the most kind of progressive politics or the most critical politics of inequality find themselves really trapped in this. And, you know, of course, I'm not saying like, oh, it's so terrible to be rich or, you know, we should feel sorry for these rich people. Of course, it's much easier to be rich in an inegalitarian society than it is to be poor or not rich. Um, But I think that this is a real dilemma that people face. So that's something that I want to highlight. Like I'm not, it's not clear. And parents struggle explicitly, some of them, with how to do this, right? They're not just unconsciously reproducing these ideas. But what I think ultimately happens is that they end up kind of teaching the kid how to act like a good rich person, mm-hmm. right? Not brag about their money, you know, not be obnoxious, not be entitled, which means like not feel like you're entitled to stuff just because you're somehow better than other people, right? They want their kids to have a work ethic. Like ideally, this is what they produce, but they don't take anything away materially from the kid. So they are, of course, also reproducing the kind of class structure at the same time. And I think that this must be quite confusing for many (laughs) of these kids to be told, like, you should appreciate this, this vacation, you know, you don't deserve it. I had one one (laughs) You don't deserve it, but here we go. (laughs) Right. You don't deserve it, but you have to work hard. You have to do your homework. Or, you know, I had one woman who travels with her husband in first class and the kids ride in the in coach oh my because gosh. the kids have not and I have actually been told that that's not uncommon and then I have also really? been told that when that happens the person who's riding with the kids is usually the like live-in housekeeper <laughs> oh or gosh. the au pair and unfortunately that's I did not ask this person whether that was the case in, in you know in, in her case right so you know they're they're coming up with these ways of trying to inculcate some sense of you know quote unquote normal hmm. in their kids but it is really difficult when their kids have this extremely privileged life you're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Rachel Sherman, an associate professor of sociology at the New School. She's the author of Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence. One thing that is so striking to me is that we have literally television shows about people who win the lottery and wh- how they spend that money on like their, I think it's like a their lottery dream home. And people, I mean, as you know, like when lottery jackpots get very, very high, there will be all sorts of news reports about people lining up down the block, right, to buy lottery tickets. And so in some ways, there's this great American dream of being rich. And a lot of people either buy doing the lottery or, or just by working hard all the time are trying to achieve that dream. And yet, our feelings about the rich, and you hear you talk to all these rich people, and they're so conflicted about being rich. You would think, like, man, they made it. They 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 accomplished what so many people like buy that ticket in hope of accomplishing. Doesn't that seem kind of, I don't know, it's a paradoxical to you? Yeah, I don't know if it's paradoxical. I mean, it's something a lot of people that I know who have read the this work have said to me. You know, it's almost reassuring to know that rich people aren't happy either. <laughs> And again, I think they're ambivalent. I don't think it's, you know, it's not only that they're, you know, they're not consciously thinking all day like it's terrible for me to have this privilege or this economic comfort, right? Of course, they are also happy that they have Mm -hmm. it. But as you said before, you know, people get accustomed to what they have. They compare themselves to those around them. So it starts to, you know, I had a, a woman say to me, 
she said New York is a bubble. You don't think that much about people that have right. less than you because everybody's pretty well off. And, you know, her housekeeper was standing like 10 feet away when the when she said that, you know, the, through the whole interview. So I think that there's a way in which people just kind of get used to the lives that they have, right? So, again, I don't want to overstate, like, they're unhappy being wealthy. I just think that they're ambivalent about it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think that we, you know, this is, these are cultural images that we have of, yes, it would be great to win the lottery, the American dream, you know, pays off if you work hard. And we have very positive images often of entrepreneurs, especially men, right? Mm-hmm. Um Bill Gates, you know, Steve Jobs, I mean, until recently, I think Mark Zuckerberg, right. who are kind of seen as adding value to the economy. And so then, you know, uh, Warren Buffett is another one who the fact that they have, you know, literally billions of dollars um, becomes sort of OK. But at the same time, we have also these images of sort of hyper consumerist. And again, I think these these are more associated with women, although not exclusively of wealthy people as dilettantes, over-consumers, self-absorbed, self-indulgent, mm-hmm. and so on. And you see that in reality TV, too. I mean, the Real Housewives franchise, totally. you know, that whole... Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, that really reproduces those kinds of images. And so especially... And most of the people I talked to, I mean, about two-thirds of my sample were women. So some of this may be more specific to women, although the men I talked to had plenty of conflicts also. Yeah. And they really struggle against those images, especially the ones who are now stay-at-home moms who are, you know, highly educated and worked in maybe finance or law and now are not working for money, really are trying not to be those people. Well, and it's interesting. You you point this out, too, that people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett often have these sort of stories, and not untrue stories, but stories attached to their wealth. So it's true Bill Gates is it you know it changes at any given moment but very often the richest man in the world and he has a ton of money but he also has pledged to give practically all of it away to very very poor people to defeating things like malaria Warren Buffett again often uh, the richest man in the world depends on the year you're looking at but famous he's famous for living in a modest house and drinking coca-cola and like eating burgers at dairy queen and stuff and in some ways i feel like those stories help to offset the wealth that they have that somehow it's okay because they're still really normal or they're you know incredibly good yeah i mean i i think you just kind of encapsulated a lot of what i'm trying to say in that in both of those those are two different processes right but they're both happening so on the one hand you have someone like buffett who is kind of attached to a middle class consumption ethic right right, right. so he's seen as down to earth you know he lives in the same house he's lived in since the 50s mm-hmm. you know everything that you said so on the one hand that's a way to be a good rich person you could have 50 or 70 billion dollars right But then, you know, you seem like kind of a nice guy and your values are in the right place if you're not being a super consumer. On the other hand, you have someone like Gates who is known, as you said, for this kind of massive philanthropy. So in that way, his wealth is acknowledged. But the idea that he's giving a lot of it away then also makes him a good person. Though, of course, you know, this philanthropy at that level, I think, really raises questions about who's in charge of where social resources go, Mm -hmm. right? If we're going to have a sort of distribution of income such that people like Gates are 
able to really determine the course of development in developing countries or the course, you know, in the U.S. of education with the investment of lots of finance people in charter schools, for example. That's a very undemocratic way to provide social goods, which is not to impugn anybody's motives in giving money away. But I don't think it's an unqualified uh, positive thing. But those are the two kinds of, of images, right, that we have. And you also said something that I think is important, which is the idea that the money is self-made. You know, politicians are always talking about how they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps right, and how right, their right. mother was a domestic worker, their grandfather was a coal miner or whatever. Right, right. So we've always had, again, you know, a sort of, I think, more of a stigma on inherited wealth, people who are seen to be unmotivated and, and lazy. And the people I interviewed who had inherited their wealth were very concerned with having paying jobs and, you know, actually working for money and seeing themselves as as workers. Because just like the stay-at-home moms are kind of trying to distance themselves from these stereotypes of the real housewives, inherited wealth people are trying to distance themselves from stereotypes of, um, you know, like rich inheritors who can't do anything. Rachel Sherman is an associate professor of sociology at the New School. She's also the author of Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence, Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And if you think there's a gap between middle class folks and the wealthy, check out the gap between the wealthy and the super wealthy, which has been exploding in recent years. We've got an article about that at our website, innovationhub.org. Plus, we'll have a link there to a recent interview we did on how much impact the super wealthy, like Bill Gates or the Koch brothers, should have on our national priorities. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. And a special thank you this week to Sarah Frazier, our former intern, who inspired and helped create our segment about music and the brain. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.